And very few states require the presence of security guards or even a security manager uh, to uh, to do, to uh, serve as a response force. Instead, it appears that they're relying upon local law enforcement. Brian R. Johnson is a professor of criminal justice at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Johnson's applied research is related to criminal justice policy issues and practices, and his publications are centered on management, criminal justice policy, criminology, crime prevention, and security. Mr. Brian Johnson, PhD, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Today, we're going to talk about the variability of security requirements and regulations in the cannabis industry. And I got to tell you, just using the word variability uh, hurt my head, right? I mean, how often do we use that word? It's a complex sentence I just read. But the cannabis industry and security is a complex issue. Give us a brief oversight on this. I, I read an interesting statistic, that, for example, that said in the United States, less than half of the states require fencing for cultivation sites. I would have thought every one of them would have had to have fencing, right? Tell us about this. Very interesting. Uh, what Chris Kirkus and I did in our research is Chris, being a Canadian, looked at the Canadian side of marijuana regulations, and I looked at the U.S. regulations. Now, the regulations vary state by state. And what's interesting with the regulations is it gets very complex and, as you pointed out, quite variable uh, depending upon uh, what the powers to be, you could say, determined in that particular state. Now, let's go back to that statistic on fencing, where 50% of the states require some type of fencing. Again, that's a correct statistic, but we have to keep in mind that there are some states out there that do not allow outdoor cultivation. A lot of states, when we start taking a look at marijuana cultivation, uh, it, it's it's hydroponic and it's it's within old warehouses in the in the uh, centers of cities and things like that. So we have to be careful when we look at the stats because in those states that require indoor marijuana cultivation only, perhaps because they're in an urban setting, we really can't use those principles of defense and depth and have uh, you know standoff zones with fencing. Nevertheless. I still found it interesting that they didn't have fencing requirements because even in an urban setting, you can have, of course, an old warehouse that you've converted to a marijuana grow operation. You can have some type of standoff zone, and then you can have effective fencing around it with lighting. So what surprises me at times is when you look at those regulations, why they don't have it because in some cases you could still have that concept of defense and depth and still have fencing as a requirement if and that's and i'll complement that with an with an if if it is acceptable for the site plan so several years ago when i was in the contract guard business i was approached in la to take over security for several marijuana clinics and they offered cash pay me in cash per week and all these perks and i just said you know what if you're not going to follow the best practices I recommend, I, I just can't do it. And they said, well, you know, the city doesn't require that. The state doesn't require that. We're not going to do it. I said, but it's still a best practice. It's a standard in the industry, regardless of whether you're in the marijuana business or not. Did you find in your research that, that best practices at a minimum level were also varied? In other words, forget that it's a marijuana factory. We can just have good old-fashioned best practices that may not be met in the cannabis industry. 
Yes, I, I would say yes. It's it's interesting when you take a look at basic security standards for physical security, where again you look at def defense in depth, and you need to have uh, delay. Uh, deterrence and response measures, let's say, and of course, detection measures too. And any effective security program or plan needs to have those elements uh, present to ensure that you can detect, delay, uh, deny, uh, you could say uh, a threat from entering your facility. And of course, you have to have response forces. And what we found in our research was, is, is there a little out of balance there in a lot of states? Primarily what states rely on when you, when you really uh, take a look at their regulations is they rely upon detection elements, i.e. cameras, digital cameras, of course, and digital recording equipment. Then when you start taking a look at other elements of a comprehensive security plan, such as response forces, and, and this is one that really surprised me because you need to have a response force uh, to, first of all, identify, is it truly a threat? But not only that, then you need that response force to stop the threat. And very few states require the presence of security guards or even a security manager uh, to uh, to do, to uh, serve as a response force. Instead, it appears that they're relying upon local law enforcement uh, to uh, to be their response force. But then the problem is, is we have to take a look at response time. Then, okay, if we have you know a, a motivated uh, threat actually get into the facility, I okay, we detected them. We have delay devices such as locks. A lot of states require, or mo all the states basically require some type of locks. Uh, but even in the in the context of locks, what surprised me was uh, the only two states required biometrics. And the rest said, basically, you shall have a secure facility that uses locks. Okay, well, that's a pretty vague statement there. But the problem is, is the threat has already entered the facility. Now we have to rely upon response time. If we don't have a response force present, then we have to ask ourselves, what is going to be the response force of the public sector law enforcement side of things? And that could take a long time. And by that time, uh, of course, uh, the crime has been, could say, committed. And our threat, our human threat is, is long gone with uh, the product. Now, the approach being taken with this reminds me a lot about port security. I, I used to do cruise ship security back in the day, and the Coast Guard was responsible for contacting you as a vendor and making sure you had a security plan. They had to approve the security plan. They had minimum requirements. But I got to say, they were flexible, right? Because Company A might not have a giant budget to put in biometrics, and Company B could. I'm hearing something like this, where states are giving these these uh, cannabis growers and, and sellers a little break because maybe there's a financial burden. But it, it seems like we're still not hitting just a, uh, a common sense approach to this. I mean, how, why would you not have a security guard at one of the highest targeted industries in the, in the, in the business? It's weird to me. I'll, I'll generalize here, but I found it surprising too, uh, because first of all, you take a look at, you know, the cultivation center itself. Uh, there's a lot of money in the pot. Okay. But not only that, uh, when you start taking a look at banking laws too, there's a lot of cash there probably. So those these are prime targets, in my opinion, for perhaps cash. And not only that, product that you could take and maybe consume yourself, but 
you're probably going to sell that uh, on, on the black market, uh, you could say. When, when I looked at this, I did see a lot of variability and I did see a lot of flexibility. And one of the reasons why I think that the regulations are minimal at times is because every site is a little different. And what I mean by that is in some cases, we might have a grow operation that is uh, in an old factory uh, within a, an urban center within a city. In other cases, maybe we'll have uh, a grow center uh, out in a rural area. But even having said that, there are still some basic security principles that we need to follow. And as I pointed out earlier, when you look at these basic, basic security principles of defense and depth, it appears that a lot of the regulations out there don't have those concentric rings of defense where we can, again, delay, detect, deny, and respond to threats. We're a little off balance there. Uh, perhaps what we may see in the future, and hopefully uh, this doesn't happen, is if we see increased crime at cultivation centers, perhaps we're going to see changes in the regulations. Now, another thing that I'd like to point out is we took a look at state regulations. And uh, with all regulations, they set the minimum standards. In most states, a marijuana cultivation license is, is very is uh, prized, you could say. Only X amount of licenses are, are given out uh, to a large pool of competitors. The way that it works usually, and I'm going to generalize here because I'm, I'm trying to combine approximately 30 states in, into one statement, which is difficult to do. But the way that it works is, let's say that you and I are competing uh, for a marijuana cultivation license. It's worth millions of dollars. One of the elements of the application process is that we have to basically provide our security plan. We have to explain what types of lighting we're going to use, what types of locks we're going to use, if we're going to have a security force, things like that. Of course, we take a look at the minimum regulations and we have to meet those. But then in the security plan, we can actually uh, meet and exceed those. So now my application goes to, uh, let's say, the marijuana board or whatever it's called in that particular state. Now they score that. And let's say that the maximum amount of points I can get for my security plan is 50. Well, they look at my plan and then they look at your plan. And let's say that your plan has all those elements of an effective security program, but mine doesn't. I'm going to get a few uh, less points on there, and that could mean that I may not get my uh, cultivator's license, and it goes to you instead. Of course, that's, that's where the research stopped when we looked at the state regulations. I would hope that these marijuana cultivation facilities themselves realize how vulnerable they are uh, to the human threat and that they've actually, of course, they've met it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten their, their license, but they've greatly exceeded uh, what uh, the state requires. You know, one question I do have, and we couldn't find this in the research, is the qualifications of those individuals that actually review the uh, application for a cultivation license at the state level. And the question I would have is, are these individuals experts in the field of security? Do they recognize an effective security plan in the context of defense and depth? 
And not only that, uh, we also wrote in the article about routine activities theory, where when we look at the elements of any crime, we can usually break it down into three sub-elements. We have the motivated and likely offender. We have the suitable target. And then we have the lack of capable guardianship. So when you think about a criminal activity, again, we have a motivated and likely offender, we have a suitable target, and we have the lack of capable guardianship. When we look at the marijuana cultivation industry, I would argue that we have a lot of motivated and likely offenders. Okay, The human threat that is looking at that particular facility and saying, wow, uh, there's uh, there's something to be had here. Uh, there's some marijuana I can uh, take and sell on the you know secondary market, let's say, or there's cash. We have the motivated and likely offenders. Then we have, of course, the suitable target, which is the marijuana uh, facility itself. And then we have the lack of capable guardianship. And when we look at capable guardianship, now we have to take a look at the principles of uh, physical security here. Again, back to delay devices, detection devices, uh, response forces, and things like that. And if one of those is out of balance, and in this particular study, we would argue that the security needs to be hardened. Okay, We need to make sure that that suitable target is, is target hardened, and we have basically capable guardians in the form of technology, staff, other devices. Brian, compare Canada to the U.S. model. There's some big differences. Yeah, there is. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say that we're comparing apples and oranges, but we always need to consider the fact that we have different governmental structures in Canada versus the United States. Of course, in the United States, we have states' rights, 10th Amendment, where each state create its own regulations uh, et cetera. When we look at Canada and we look at their specific requirements for security, the way that the, the requirements are constructed and written are almost educational in nature, where they clearly lay out what an effective security plan should be. And what's nice about the Canadian model, and I'll call it a model, versus the, the U.S. requirements is the Canadians explicitly state, you have to have a security plan that has defense and depth built into it, i.e. you have to have those concentric rings of security. And all the security systems that you have, uh, or elements, I should say, the elements that you have must complement one another to, to delay you know, that human adversary from making it into your particular facility. I found that to be really interesting and I guess, again, I'll say very educational in nature where after you read that one, you go, wow, this this plan makes perfect sense. And if anything, I, I'd be wondering if other states have looked at the Canadian model to uh, to extract some of their elements from that to complement their existing security regulations. What's also interesting is when we look at any state level regulation, and, and the model of regulation is, is oftentimes referred to it as regulatory persuasion. These are the minimum requirements. And of course, we want you to meet these minimum requirements. And then hopefully you meet and hopefully, of course, you've met them and you exceed them. But when, when you take a look at Canada, they also 
use that model of regulatory persuasion. But at the same time, it appears that their regulations are more educational in nature, where they say, this is what we would like to see and why we would like to see it. And of course, we're going to evaluate you or assess you on these, but it's a little more richer in detail than what you find uh, in many states uh, within the United States that have uh, legalized uh, marijuana cultivation, commercial cultivation. Brian, this is fascinating information. There's a lot of data you gathered here. What did you take away from this? What what did you learn at the end of, of your study? When we entered into this research project, I had an assumption that the established security at the state level would be very, very high for marijuana cultivation facilities. You look at the anecdotal research out there or articles, and they often refer to cultivation centers as being the Fort Knox of security. And I went into it with that mindset that, wow, when we start taking a look at these security regulations, it's going to be the the Fort Knox metaphor, where it's just going to be layer and layer and layer of security and, and high tech and guards. But when we started analyzing the data and coding it, I soon found that in a lot of cases, it's really not the Fort Knox uh, that I imagined it would be. Instead, based upon the research, yes, there are some areas of the security requirements that are strong. The strongest is detection elements. But then when we start taking a look at other elements of a comprehensive security plan, they just don't exist within state regulations, i.e., very few states require response forces, guards. Okay, then we start taking a look at delay devices, uh, such as fencing, uh, and we could argue if it's delay or deterrence, but nevertheless, offense delays. Not a lot of states have fencing requirements. And then when you look at locking requirements, they're, they're basic uh, requirements, and, and they really, uh, they meet security standards, you could say, but they really don't exceed security standards. And when you look at the marijuana industry as a whole, you know, we have dispensaries, we have cultivation uh, facilities, which we concentrated our research on. When you look at how, how politicized it is, I expected to see that states had very, very strict requirements to be able as a, as a private company to have a grow operation within that state. And these requirements were really not that strict. If anything, they were just simple, basic requirements that we see uh, in other industry groups. Brian Johnson, PhD, we're speaking about the variability of security requirements in regulations in the cannabis industry. Brian, fascinating conversation. Come on back and tell us some more because we, we need to get better at this. This is not going away. It's here to stay. And we have to make the standards a little higher. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management oh, yeah. Highlights, my Super friend. Respect. Thanks for your time and have a good day.